This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. Welcome to the Be Here Now Network guest podcast. This series features talks from a myriad of modern spiritual teachers expanding on how we can all live a life in balance. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash donate or bookmark our Amazon link. Any order made via this link will contribute a small percentage to the Be Here Now Network at no extra cost to you. For this latest installment in the Be Here Now Network's guest podcast, Mirbai Bush, author, spiritual teacher, and longtime collaborator with Ram Dass, shares her unique perspective on contemplative practices. This talk comes from one of Mirbai's workshops at Ram Dass's retreats on Maui. Mirbai shares with us her life's journey and how she's applied what she learned from her guru, Neem Karoli Baba, to never go where there is no love. Mirbai recounts times from her experiences working in war-torn Guatemala and teaching meditation to the U.S. military, and that although difficult, she came to see love in everyone while learning that there really is no us and them. Mirbai concludes with looking at how the work we are doing on ourselves is at the heart of change in the world. Enjoy this talk with Mirbai and stay tuned for more from the Be Here Now Network guest podcast. Well, I thought we'd, um, that I'd focus today on, you know, how does this all work when we are in the world and we're not here with everyone who's committed to being loving all the time. Um, so, <laughs> um, I, uh, and, and uh, another uh, theme that I think is important, that whatever um, teachings we receive, whatever we hear that seems important to us, it keeps on changing over time. And this has been one of the great gifts of being in this wonderful family of, of uh, satsang, is that over the years, we just are always checking in with each other. And everything keeps changing. <laughs> and um, so um, before I um, left India, Maharaji one time said to me, um, never go where there is no love. 
So, um, <laughs> over time, this has meant many different things to me. I'm going to share them with you. <laughs> the first thing, at, at first, I felt like that meant, oh, we have to stay in a really close, tight, knit community of people like this, you know, who are all committed to being loving all the time. Of course, we weren't, but um, we, at least we, <laughs> we were all carrying something from Maharaji, you know, and so came back to this country, and we, we did. I mean, we hardly saw other people <laughs> for a long time. We first, you know, um, a group of us lived together. We, um, you know, we chanted and we cooked brown rice and we learned to make our own yogurt. And we um, delivered each other's babies and um, we... Um, and we just stayed together and, and in this kind of attempt to keep everything alive. And it was a really wonderful time. Um, uh, then uh, uh, we, a group of us, just after uh, Maharaji died, a group of us then went to live out in California together. And we all lived together. And we made that first album called Love, Serve, Remember. That was, I, there was a, a copy of it in the, um, in the auction. And uh, we, so we all lived together and we sang and we recorded and we were out in the redwoods and again, it was just us, you know. Um, and then we, uh, then one season after that we lived in Berkeley uh, and uh, I lived, it was so amazing. It's that um, we were so in the presence of, you know, Everything is happening exactly as it should. You know, everything will be, that's important will be taken care of. Um, we, none of us had any money. And uh, so I lived with my husband and my baby son uh, with uh, Jai Utal and another friend, Govind, who is an amazing uh, violin player, uh, in a one-bedroom apartment in Berkeley. And we would... <laughs> We would uh, go out on the street and we'd put down the Indian bedspread, you know. And we'd sit there and we had a bowl in front of us, you know. <laughs> we'd chant, people would put money in it. And at the end of the day, we would... And Owen was in his little... Um, those little plastic chairs they used to have for babies. And um, at the end of the day, we'd stop at the vegetable store on the way home and, you know, we'd buy vegetables and we'd cook them up and we were really happy. Um, <laughs> It's just good to know that it's possible. <laughs> um, around that time also, we started a... Um, uh, we said, Maharaj, said, feed people, right? We were so literal, you know. So we started a vegetarian catering service called Amazing Grace. And uh, it was this radical thing. People would hire us to do, like, you know, their 30th birthday party, and it would be vegetarian. It would be, like, a big deal. And um, so... <laughs> Uh, and then um, out of that, um, with my uh, uh, with my then husband John Krishna Bush, we started. Um, we did need some money, and the 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 vegetable money got spent every day. So, and we had a child. So, um, we um, we started. We we thought about what we could offer that would um, uh, express. One of Maharaji's teachings, which was sub-ek, it's all one. 
And so we had traveled overland to India, and we had stayed in a lot of different cultures and experienced a lot of different spiritual cultures. And so we um, thought of the, the one uh, kind of iconic expression that existed in every culture, and um, that was the mandala. And uh, we started uh, silk screening them on clear plastic with a sticky back, and people put them on the backs of their cars and on their windows. And um, we did the, um, the the rose window from Chart and the Sri Yantra, and the, um, there was one from every different culture. Um, and uh, they were extremely popular. We had no idea. We started out sneaking into the Berkeley uh, silkscreen studio after the Puerto Rican separatists would do their stuff, and then <laughs> we'd go in and silkscreen. And um, we, we, we borrowed $100 to start it, and then, you know, we silkscreened the first ones, and uh, we went to the Whole Earth Fair, and we put them out and said, give what you can, and we got $200, and then we bought another screen, and it kind of built up like that. Before this thing was over, um, we, they, we were in 10,000 stores. So um, <laughs> it was because we made a rainbow, the universal symbol of peace and harmony. But, um, but, we, but that also was... Um, uh, we hired our friends, and then we hired friends of friends, and we created it as if it were... It was an, uh, an extension of how we would live with Maharaji. Every Tuesday, we had a big feast. We, um, we built it on principles of right livelihood and, and things that Maharaji said, always tell the truth and you'll never be afraid. Always telling the truth in American business turns out to be extremely problematic. <laughs> we would tell the printers that we needed something at a certain day because that's exactly when we needed it. Of course, they didn't believe us. They figured we were saying we needed it then, but we really needed it two weeks from then. And so <laughs> they wouldn't pay any attention to us. Um, uh, we, at the end of the... Maharaji would always say, all the money in the world is mine. You know, so we... The, as the money came in, we thought, well, it's not ours, Maharaji. So we gave it all away at the end of every year. So um, <laughs> it was a very idealistic business. Um, <laughs> but it was really great. Ramdas would come, and Ramdas would give these great talks about right livelihood to the, to the staff. And um, the staff, it, that went until like 80, I forget, three or something. And um, the staff, many of the staff of Illuminations, still has annual um, uh, gatherings together be and, um, because they were so important to each other. So going through these things together that we are doing in this week, it's important, you know, you're having a big impact on each other. It's not just that, you know, when you hear someone speak from up here that this is important, but you're having a big influence on each other. So that was, so then I thought, well, you know, this is what Maharaji told me to do. Never go where there is no love. So I just um, stayed in that alternative world. Um, but then um, after that, I that seemed, I mean, it was 
fairly limited. And, um, and through the business, of course, you know, in the world with, you know, it, it was part of a network of, of a business. So um, I began to think about how um, to how you could be in the world that you weren't creating yourself and, and still never go where there is no love. And um, around in the mid-70s, um, some of us who'd been with Maharaji started a uh, foundation uh, and, um, uh, called Seva Foundation. And, you know, Ram Dass was our chief, he was our spiritual advisor, leader, heart, but also... He was the chief fundraiser. In, in not every organization do, you do both those things come together. But, and he would do it like this. You know, we'd give these talks. In those days, Ramdas could put up a note on a, on a pole somewhere and a thousand people would show up. And, um, and, we would, and we would charge 10 or $15 each, as Wavy Gravy used to say, one eyeball at a time. And... So, and um, uh, so it was the same, it was this, you know, the same grassroots loving community coming together to, um, um, and so uh, when I um, stopped uh, working with Illuminations, I um, started working full-time with Seva, and um, uh, my work was mostly in Guatemala. And um, so I started thinking that um, maybe one way to never be where there is no love is to take love with you. So, um, I, uh, we, we, it's a long story which I'm not going to get too much into, but uh, we, it was 1986, and it was right after the, uh, this terrible uh, violence in Guatemala, and many people had lost everything. They'd lost their homes and their land and their elders, and often all the men in the village were killed and the women were left alone. Um, uh, babies were dying from malnutrition. There was no food. Um, it was unbelievable. And uh, so we uh, met some of these folks and then were drawn in to, um, uh, to being there with them. And um, it, was, uh, it was an amazing time. It was when we've been talking a couple of times about compassionate action and whether you should kind of wait until you're realized because you might make some mistakes, you know, and uh, cause suffering while you're trying to relieve suffering. This was a case of more... When we saw and heard what was happening, for me, it was... I, I was completely helpless. I just... There was nothing to do except to just, like throw myself totally into it. And um, uh, actually, it was kind of like 10 years later, I, I looked up and said, oh my God, what, what happened? You know, it was just uh, that complete. So we would go there and just, um, at first we had to really simply listen, just like you were listening to each other. We just listened and listened to the stories and, you know, what might help. And, you know, we made lots of mistakes, but mainly we took ourselves there and um, we took our children with us. It was still a pretty dangerous time in Guatemala, so it was, but we felt it was an important statement to make that we weren't representing some monolithic, you know, organization uh, in the north, 
but uh, that we were real people who were really listening to them and really wanted to help however we could and we didn't really know how and let's figure it out together. And, but mainly it was, we went there to be loving and to see how we could help. Um, and um, so that lasted a long time. And, um, and it really, for me, was about, in the beginning, it was kind of like taking love. And, um, of course, over time, we received more love than we could ever, ever, you know, take and give. Um, it was an amazing relationship that formed. And then love just blossomed. It was extraordinary. And then after that... Um, uh, that began to seem... I began to see the way I was thinking about it. And it wasn't all quite linear like this, you know. It's, but I began to think that it was... Maybe what he really meant wasn't like take, giving love to others, too dualistic. But that maybe it was like um, just seeing and experiencing and knowing love in others that's already there. Of course, it's always there. There's nowhere you can go where there isn't love. But just seeing it and experiencing it in others um, was maybe what he meant. And uh, during that, um, after, I, um, after the Seva work, I, um, and kind of coming out of that um, with others, um, and I... Um, started an organization called the Center for Contemplative Mind and Society. And uh, it was a form, now we were really entering the big world, and we had to have big words to do it. And uh, <laughs> so um, we, and, and the idea was to bring these practices in ways that um, had integrity and depth, but that, that we could take out into... Um, uh, into the mainstream world and uh, see if they could be beneficial to people. I mean, we know that they're beneficial to people, but we were trying to see whether it could work um, in uh, professional contexts, work contexts, and so on. So, um, and of course, Ramdas was there for that in the beginning also. It, it came about because, um, partly, because... Uh, there were two foundation presidents who had funded the beginning of the work on um, mind, body, health, and wellness. They'd, Bill Moyers had done a series in the 90s on, called Healing in the Mind. And people were just beginning to get that, which is kind of amazing now. I mean, I went through this surgery with a top surgeon in Boston, you know, and um, he, at, I went back for my checkup and... I said, well, you know, can I do, how soon can I do yoga, you know, how soon can I travel, um, should I keep raising my feet? Uh, I was like, all these questions for him, and finally he said, I mean, he gave me answers, but then finally he said, Mirabai, listen to your body. <laughs> I said, whoa, <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> I can do that. <laughs> But there was a time when a, an orthopedic surgeon would not say that. And um, so they had funded this in the beginning of this movement, and then um, they funded John Kabat-Zinn and Danny Goldman and a lot of people who were Dean Ornish who were working on that work. And what they saw was that um, 
many people who were working in alternative, what became integrated health methods, uh, were using contemplative practices of mindfulness and yoga and tai chi and so on. So we started wondering if we could introduce it in other parts, sectors of American society. So, um, so we did. And so um, we worked with lots of different kinds of people. Um, the big teaching for me in this time was really seeing love, the spirit, in uh, Maharaji, in, in others, because I was drawn into places where um, you can hear that I'd spent all these years in this alternative realities. And um, so the first thing we did was uh, we did a um, retreat for corporate executives. And I hadn't really thought much about corporate executives, as you can imagine, for a while. And so I once did work for RCA on weather satellites to work my way through graduate school, but it had been a long time before. And um, we... Uh, so we did a retreat, and, and um, they came, and, you know, in their corporate jets and their suits, and um, I realized that I had... Uh, slowly realized that I had this real kind of bias that I thought these aren't very deep people, you know. These are like people who are committed to the bottom line, and you know, I had a lot of ideas about who they were, um, and uh, anyhow, things unfolded. Uh, I got to um, really listen to. Of course, in a retreat context, you know, you get to see people in a different way. I got to really listen to them and the suffering that all beings have, they, guess what, they had too. And I remember at the very last um, uh, meditation in this retreat, we, um, uh, the, uh, the teacher I was working with led a meditation for, uh, a loving-kindness meditation for all sentient beings. And he went through the different beings kind of one by one, not all, but, you know. Uh, and um, it, was, it was a long loving-kindness meditation as we reflected on all these different kinds of beings. And I opened my eyes, and in that moment I saw almost every face in the room, there were tears running down their face. And... Um, my heart just burst open, you know. It was just it's like this, oh, my God, you know. It's us. It's just us. It's always just us. I remember I got on the plane to go home after it, and I was flying around so much in those years that I was always upgraded. And so I was, and I fly into Hartford, and Hartford is the home of, of insurance companies, you know. And I had sort of um, taught myself to not open up conversations because there was always insurance executives, and I always thought they were boring. And so that I remember I walked into first class, and there were all these guys putting their stuff up. And, and, and it was like my heart just went, oh, I'm so happy to be here. It was like really <laughs> great. Um, <laughs> so after that, many other challenges came. But um, I want to share one with you. Um, 
is that uh, in, this is in 2008, but um, uh, I got a call one day um, from a uh, captain in the army, and he said, um, "You know," he said, "I I I want to talk to you. We're having problems with resilience, and I uh, and I would like to talk to you about your work. I saw your tree of contemplative practices on, and and uh, I said." How do you, how, why are you calling me? How did you find us? And this is 2008. I mean, you have, so much has happened in the last six or seven years. I mean, the, the mindfulness is everywhere. This 2008 was like not. So um, I said, he said, on the web, he was Southern. You know, a lot, lot, of, lot of officers in the military are Southern. On the web. I said... <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I remember he said, uh, so we talked, and he started telling me about um, uh, basically suffering in the Army. What a hard, he was a chaplain. And in, in the Army at that time, there was, and this is right in the middle of people going into their third deployment in Iraq, there was one chaplain for every 1,000 soldiers. And you know, back in the First World War, they used to say, um, uh, you know, uh, what's that expression about being in a fo- oh, finding God in a foxhole? You know, if you ever were, go- if you were ever going to get religion, it was going to be then. You know, when you're in the foxhole. Uh, so here's a thousand soldiers for every one chaplain. So he said the chaplains were really burning out, and um, they had vicarious trauma. So. Um, uh, did I think that meditation could help? So he said, I'd like to come and see you at, at your office. Oh, he said, I'd like to talk to you again. And I said, you know, okay, how about Wednesday at 1? And he said, okay. And just as I was hanging up, he said, I'll see you there. And, and, I, and I thought, oh, my God, he's, he's coming to our office. And I said, he didn't even ask me how to get here. And so someone said, Mirabai? They found Baghdad. They're going to find Northampton. <laughs> so then I went through these, you know, I had in, in uh, during the time, I had, a re- back in the day, been married to an Air Force officer, but it was in the early 60s before the Vietnam War. He was an aeronautical engineer. He was all, he might as well have been working for NASA. You know, it was not, there was no war going on. It was very different. Um, then uh, when I was in graduate school, I became a big anti-war activist. I used to, because I was a little older than the others and I had lived in straight society, I was, um, I used to be the person to drive uh, war resistors across the Canadian border. And I would like, dress up like Jackie Kennedy, you know, and then <laughs> be cool and drive across the border, and they, they always made it. Um, but I, you know, I was really involved in resistance, and um, I, uh, and I just carried that forward with me, you know. I had uh, birthed my son in Canada because I wanted him to have dual citizenship and because the draft was still on then. Now I think the draft is a good thing, but that's different. So, um, 
anyhow, all of this was swirling around in my mind, you know. And um, I went home and started thinking about it. And I found this um, from my uh, journal that um, I started thinking, what do I, how do I put together, you know, spirituality and the military? And then I thought, well, of course, guess where? The Bhagavad Gita. Um, not forgetting that in 1974, I guess, that someone mentioned the first summer of Naropa. Um, Ramdas offered a course in the Bhagavad Gita. A thousand people, I think, 800 or a thousand people came to this course on the Bhagavad Gita. It's probably the only time in the history of North America a thousand people signed up for the Bhagavad Gita. But um, I had thought about it. Um, so this, some of you know it, and others, this is what I wrote. The scene is a sacred plain of Kurukshetra. The setting is a battlefield. The circumstance is war. The main characters are Supreme Lord Krishna and Prince Arjuna. Arjuna's dejected, burned out. He's afraid of losing friends and relatives in the course of the impending war, and he thinks war is sinful. He also had no real desire to kill people on the other side. They may be greedy for his land, but they were his cousins, and they had families just like he did. He says his arms and legs feel weak, and his mouth is dry. He's trembling. His hair is standing on end. His skin is burning and his weapon is slipping out of his hands. He asks Krishna for help. Krishna tells him that this is his job, his duty, protecting his tribe. This is a righteous war for the purpose of justice, I wrote. I guess those still existed then. Arjuna needs to do his duty with nobility. He tells Arjuna to remember that the soul never dies, so it's impossible to really kill anyone. They will be reborn or go to heaven. This part, I thought, is vulnerable to fundamentalist mis misreading. Thinking that it's fine to send someone into the next life could lead to suicide bombing and the Crusades. During, during World War II, Himmler said that he always carried a copy of the Gita with him because it relieved him of guilt since he was simply doing his duty without attachment to his actions. The key is that you have to do it really without attachment. That's what Arjuna needs to learn. You can't do it because you want power or treasure or virgins, or you are driven by an ideology and not looking at the situation deeply enough to know whether it's right or wrong. And the way to hear the right place to act this is the rest of the Gita, is um, meditation and other forms of yoga, including devotion, study, and service, so that you understand the interconnection of all life and its moral implications. Then I was back again with the army, and um, I decided I really needed to listen to him. And I did, and we talked and talked and talked. And, um, I mean, there were moments like, at one point I said, well, you know, I, this is a hard one for me because I don't believe in war and the army takes us to war. And his face just, it was, he was incredulous. He said, Mirabai, 
The army doesn't take us to war. Civilians declare war, and the army follows orders. It was a moment. Anyhow, um, we did many things together. We did a whole research study on resilience and how meditation and these other practices could be helpful for caregivers in the army, medics and, um, and uh, chaplains. And um, then uh, we, we were going to have a little um, kind of round table of six or eight of us to talk about these things. It was so new. I just thought I was thinking of bringing some of the main researchers because the Army loves data and research, you know. So uh, some researchers and some decision makers in the Army to just sit around and a, and a meditation teacher and talk about, uh, you know, what, what's here, what's possible. Um, and it was so interesting. So, uh, as, so I invited um, a few people. I, I started with Sharon Salzberg and... Um, and Norman Fisher, who used to be the abbot of the uh, San Francisco Zen Center, and um, uh, Cliff Sarin, and, and, uh, from, who's a researcher at um, uh, UC Davis. And um, then what happened was people in the Army started hearing about it, and they, all, they started emailing, and they wanted to come. And we ended up with people from the Department of Defense, West Point, Walter Reed, the U.S. Medical um, uh, Commission, the Comprehensive Soldier Fitness, and, and the group that was charged with re-entry then, which is called Battle Mind. After we got lighter about the whole thing, we used to joke about Battle Mind meets Contemplative Mind. You know? <laughs> but um, so, uh, and um, Robert, the chaplain, felt like it was an opportunity and he couldn't, Say no. So we ended up doing it at the uh, at the, cathed the National Cathedral in D.C. And there were like 45 people there. And um, most of them were from these different parts of the Army. And, um, and you know, the Army now, at all levels, they, they all wear camouflage all the time. And those boots on the ground. And so I've, I discovered in Northampton, where I live... Um, about camouflage is that it has the opposite effect if you're not in the desert or the jungle. You know? <laughs> We'd walk down the street in Northampton and everybody would <laughs> turn around. So the cathedral filled up with all these people in camouflage and, um, and then Norman and, um, and Sharon and a, a woman who teaches Christian insight meditation because of course most of the chaplains are Christian and um, uh, and then the head of neuroscience at Stanford called and begged me to let him come. And um, uh, there, uh, a woman who is a friend who um, was ninth generation military had gotten post-traumatic stress from being in, I uh, can't remember where, in, battle, in the battlefront. And... Um, came home and discovered, I think through Sharon, uh, discovered meditation and then went to um, Burma and took robes as a nun. Um, you, can, you can become a nun for short periods in Southeast Asia. She did that for a year and she came back and when she came back she really wanted to bring together 
both of these worlds of hers. So she spoke. And so there we were. And the thing for me that was so amazing was that pretty much everybody in that room thought that they would never be in a room with the other people in that room. And, um, you know, and most of the, you know, most of the people who were there representing meditation had also had some, you know, background in resisting war in one way or another. And um, here we all were, and it opened with, um, with the military uh, talking about the suffering that they were experiencing, that the soldiers were experiencing in the field, and what it was like when they were coming back. And now you all know these stories. We all know these stories. But then, um, it was still, this 2008, it was still early. And the stories were heartbreaking. I mean, they were... And they were so real. I mean, we all sit here and we struggle with our, you know with our, how hard it is to work with somebody or how, you know, our parents weren't good enough to us as children and all that stuff. I mean, you know, and that's really all important to process. But hearing these stories of, of uh, the, the kind of suffering that happens in the field was... And, and uh, uh, Jack was saying, not just the things that happened to me, but the things that I had to do... Um, where it just broke my heart. And everybody in the room was kind of... You know, if you've seen the Dalai Lama, when he's listening to someone, he is literally on the edge of his chair. He, like, gets out on the edge of his chair, and he's leaning forward, you know, as, as if he wants to hear every intonation, you know. And that was what it was like in this room. Everybody was listening so hard because they all really wanted to hear what the others were saying. You know, so often when you're hearing somebody um, give a talk or if you're in a meeting, you kind of know what everyone's going to say before they say, you know, I mean, they're permutations, but kind of know. Um, nobody had any idea, you know, what people on, on the other side of this were actually going to say. It was so beautiful. And, um, and then... Uh, they hadn't asked us to lead any meditation, so that wasn't on the, in the program. But um, both Sharon and Norman, as they spoke, kind of dropped down into uh, that, that meditative intonation, you know, as they were telling that this is what it's like when you meditate. You do that, you know, you follow your breath and you drop into a very quiet place and you begin to be focused and then you have an openness to, you know, intuitive wisdom and, whoa. I mean, <laughs> the room got really deep and quiet. It was really beautiful. So um, I left that experience. Um, I loved those guys. You know, I've really felt like I was able to see the humanity and love and suffering and in, in all of them. And um, I just, that, that's been such an important teaching for me. And of course, and I, that I, I know that these implicit biases we have, most of which are unconscious, are so important in our world. And I've every day been going back and, you know, 
looking at the, the, um, these various videos of Eric Garner in New York being choked by the police and dying and calling out, you know, I just this is such a meditative cry. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And so much of that has to do with these deep, implicit biases we have about each other, you know, and who's bad and who's good. And the work is deep. And, um, uh, but so I, so I do know that the work that we're doing together is at the heart of how change will happen in the world. And the last thing I wanted to say is that... Um, especially from being with Ram Dass over the last five years or so, um, that, that seeing and knowing love in others, um, that I really realized that, that then the kind of... It's not really like these are stages. They're all intertwined and happening at the same time. But that in a way, that the next stage is just to be love. And that used to sound like a, you know... I don't know. It, oh, that would be great to be love, sure. Um, but just being with Ramdas and watching that really happen before our eyes, um, it's been so inspiring. And I know that that is that's the the next or you know real work. And we can, you know, we're doing it all the time, even if we haven't thought about all these other ways of being loving. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNowToday to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.